You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. experiment today to see which we come to the end of first, my voice or my sermon. And of course, the end of my voice also means the end of my sermon, so I'll do my best to sort of keep subdued a little bit and see if we can get through this before my vocal box uh, or my vocabulary, either one, give out. (laughs) Turn your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 4. Book of Philippians chapter 4. We're going to read together verse 14 through 20. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that today Your Word would be our rule, that Your Spirit would be our teacher, that Your strength would be our supply, and that Your greater glory would be our consuming concern. And we ask that You would watch over this time to that end today through the glory of Jesus Christ and for His sake and in His name. Amen. When I graduated from third year of Bible college, it was customary, I should say, to begin with in our Bible college that every graduating class had a class song and a class motto. And then when you graduated, they would sing the class song over and over again. And, of course, your class motto would be printed on all the banners and the invitations and the programs. And uh, if your class song was a, a popular song, then they would sing it for a special, etc., Our class, we had an unofficial class song and we had an official class song. The official class song was the song that we sang, which was our graduation theme, and that was Another Time and Another Place by Sandy Patty. Something gets caught in my throat when I say the word Sandy Patty. Because she's not my favorite artist. But um, (laughs) they didn't consult me when they selected the unofficial class or the official class song because I was far too busy not paying attention in classes that I thought I would never need. But we had an unofficial class song, which was the song that we sang every time we got together as a class and had any sort of class-wide function and uh, any time we had the opportunity to prayer meeting or a prayer group, and that was, To God Be the Glory, that Him. Most of you know that. To God be the glory, great things He has done, so loved you the world that He gave us His Son, who yielded His life in atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. That was our unofficial class song. We sang that all the time. That today is still one of my top five favorite songs, To God Be the Glory. 
And we had an official class motto, which was on all of our uh, all of our invitations and our banners and everything. And it was actually a long motto. And it was a quote by Jim Elliott, the missionary. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You heard that? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I remember as a third year Bible college student thinking, what a great motto. That is great. That is really a, a high ideal. That's something that as students we ought to aspire to. And I always thought of Jim Elliott as one of those guys who was super spiritual and he was willing to give up everything, houses and lands and everything for the Lord and to go without all of that, without any hope of recompense, without any hope of reward. Just give it all up for the Lord. Go out to the mission field. Sacrifice it all. But I think back then I misunderstood Jim's point. Listen to the words again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What was Jim Elliot after? Gain. Gain. It wasn't because he was so super spiritual. And he was a spiritual man. And he was a godly man. I'm not arguing against that. But his desire to give up everything in this life was not just to be spiritual and to live a monastic life. But he understood that to give up something in this life was to gain something in the life to come. What Jim Elliot was after was gain. Not earthly gain, but eternal gain. And when I say that, I'm not in any way suggesting that he was thinking in terms of salvation things. We're not talking about, Jim was not talking about, neither am I talking about, giving up something in order that I can gain salvation. Or giving something so that I can gain salvation. Salvation is by grace, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's not what we're talking about. But what I am talking about is eternal rewards. And it's appropriate to keep that in mind that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order that he could gain that which he cannot lose. It's appropriate to keep that in mind because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is speaking of in Philippians 4, verse 17. Last week we looked at verses 4 through 16 and we saw that giving is a personal involvement. They, through their gift to the Apostle Paul, gave evidence of their fellowship with Paul, evidence of their faith in the Gospel, and evidence of their faithfulness to the Lord. In giving, they demonstrated that where their heart is, that's where their treasure was. And wherever they put their treasure, that's where their heart inevitably followed. And today we're going to see in verse 17, when the Apostle Paul says, Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Last week we saw that giving is a personal involvement. Verse 17, giving is a profitable investment. Unless you think I've jumped ship and become a prosperity preacher... Give me a chance to explain that. I'm simply using the same terminology that the Apostle Paul uses in verse 17. Giving is itself a very profitable investment for us because we are no fools if we give what we cannot keep in order to gain that which we cannot lose. So that's what we're looking at today. And I want you to see today that the Apostle Paul's motive was not in any way selfish. And he says this, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. And he uses a word there twice. It's the word seek. It's a word that meant to pursue something with earnestness, to hunt after something eagerly, to strive for something, to go after it. We would put it in our, in our English words today. We would say to set your heart on something and then to pursue it. That's the idea behind that word. And the apostle says in receiving the gift from you Philippians, I'm not seeking the gift itself. And in thanking you for the gift, I'm not pursuing or going after just the gift. So when the gift arrived from Epaphroditus, or at the hands of Epaphroditus, and the Apostle Paul was provided with that financial gift, which supplied for his needs, provided for his, want, or his needs and his desires, and, and made life easier for him, and relieved the, 
the poverty that he was under, when that arrived, the Apostle Paul was thankful and he rejoiced, but it wasn't because he was seeking or pursuing the gift itself. Now, I've noticed something as we've gone through this passage, beginning particularly at verse 10. I have noticed that the Apostle Paul seems very sensitive in how he handles financial and money issues. Have you noticed that? It seems as if Paul is at least sensitive to the possibility that his motives would be misunderstood and, and uh, sort of mischaracterized. You see it in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord when you revived your concern for me. But then he... Then verses 11, 12, and 13, he sort of qualifies. He doesn't want them to misunderstand. And he says, I'm rejoicing, but not because I wasn't content. I was perfectly content in the condition that I was in. I want you to know I've learned to be content in any condition. So don't think that my rejoicing is because you have come in and I was discontent and now I've been, I've received something. Then you get here in, in verses 14, or, uh, 14, 15, and 16, and the Apostle Paul thanks them for what they did, calls what they did good and excellent. But then in verse 17, he says, I don't want you to think that I was after the gift itself. Why do you think the Apostle Paul was sensitive about money issues? Or at least sensitive to the possibility that his motives could be misunderstood? You know what I think it was? Because oftentimes his motives were misunderstood. There were times when the Apostle Paul found himself in a no-win situation. If he received a gift from a church, his enemies would jump on that and say he's covetous. They would, Paul accepted the gift for the spiritual work that he would do for them, and his enemies would come in and say, see, he's discontent, he's covetous, he's greedy, he's doing this for financial gain, he should just be giving it to you people. But the apostle, he travels into town, and then he whips you up into emotional frenzy, and he gets you all on this spiritual bandwagon, on this spiritual drum that he's beating, and he asks for your money, and you give him his mo- your money, and then off he goes to the next town to do the same thing all over again. He's just peddling the Word of God is all he's doing. He's using Christianity as an excuse to make a lot of money at a lot of gullible people's expense. That's what they would say to him. And the Apostle Paul answered that, that uh, charge in a lot of his different epistles. First Thessalonians, he says, we came to you, we didn't use the gospel as a pretext for greed. You yourselves know how we labored among you night and day with our own hands so that we might not be a burden to any of you. And we preached to you the gospel of God and we cared for you and we demonstrated how it is, more, uh, it is better for one to give than it is to receive. He said that to the Ephesian elders, Acts chapter 20. He said, I've coveted no man's silver or gold or clothes. We didn't come into Ephesus and want your money, and so that's why we preached the gospel to you. But we labored with our own hands, showing you that it's more blessed to give than to receive, just as the Lord Jesus said. He said the same thing to the Corinthians. We didn't. We took from other churches in order to serve you. We never asked you for a dime. So if the Apostle Paul received money for spiritual service and for preaching the gospel and for planting a church in order to be supported in his ministry, his enemies would charge him with covetousness and greed. But then what if he refused it? Then you know what they said? It's false humility. Oh, he's being falsely humble. He's got all kinds of money. He just, it's just a show of humility is all it is. He's not really a humble man. And he dealt with that with the Corinthians from whom he never took a dime. And so he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I think it is, we robbed other churches for your sake so that we could serve you. We took money from the Macedonians. And we never asked you for a dime. And we humbled ourselves before you. And his enemies would say he's just falsely humble. So it seems like the Apostle Paul is a little sensitive that his motives and his heart could be misunderstood, which is why he offers the clarification that he does. Now listen, there's a reason for that, and that is because false teachers are covetous. Have you noticed that? False teachers are covetous. When a false teacher stands up to preach or to teach or when he sees an opportunity for ministry and he looks out at God's people, you know what he sees? Wallets and dollar signs and money. That's what he sees. 
Second Peter chapter two, Peter describes them as having hearts that are trained in greed. In greedy, in greed, they exploit you with their false words. Uh, Jude verse eleven says, "Woe to them! They have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. They love the wages of unrighteousness. It's all about money for the false teacher. They're lovers of money, so everything that they do is geared after getting people's money." Not so with Paul. Now, did Paul receive money from churches to support him? You know he did. And he defended the right of those who work in the Gospel to get their living from the Gospel. And he instructed the churches to pay their elders who work hard among them and labor, especially at preaching and teaching. And he himself received money even from the church of Philippi. But did he do it with a heart of covetousness and greed? No, he didn't. He said, I didn't want anybody's silver or gold. And people did supply for his needs. But Paul is very sensitive. And this... Encourages me somewhat because I always speak about money and finances very reluctantly, and I'm told by the other two elders that I shouldn't do that because it's in Scripture just like everything else is, so I should just teach it boldly and say it as it is, but I'm always reluctant to talk about money because it's not one of my favorite subjects to talk about. And I always fear that somebody's going to misunderstand our motives as elders for teaching on a subject like this, and I hope you don't. You'll recognize that the Apostle Paul in verse 17, he says, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. The Apostle Paul's doing something. He does it all the way through the whole passage. It's intentional and it's purposeful. He is using accounting language. The language of an accountant. And I failed to point this out last week. It's up in verse 15. I didn't remember to point this out. The Apostle Paul says, no church, no church shared with me in the matter, and that is an accounting term that means an account, No church shared with me in the matter of giving, and that refers to paying or having accounts payable and receiving, which is accounts receivable. He's using commercial, financial accounting terms all the way through the passage. He does it in verse 15. He does it here again in verse 17. It's not that I seek after the gift, but I seek for the profit. And that was a word that was used in Paul's day to speak of the money that you would receive for work that you did, the fruit of your labor. It was also used to describe uh, the profit that you would receive from a transaction between two individuals where both of you make an exchange and one walks away with a profit. It was also used to describe interest that was given on an account or on a loan or on an investment. It's a financial term. I seek for the profit which increases. That's another accounting term that the apostle uses to describe that which would grow over the course of time. Uh, A modern day Equivalent would be compound interest. You invest something or you purchase something, and over the course of time, it grows in value. And the Apostle describes something, an an account or a profit that increases to your account. And there he uses the word for an account again, same one used in verse 15. So six different words, or six different times, the Apostle Paul has used accounting terminology to speak of a reward or a profit which increases to those who give. Now that I think is very interesting because I thought I would be an accountant. Accountant. That's what I was going to school to do. So when I start reading through something and I see the Apostle Paul throwing around accounting terms, it kind of piques my interest a little bit. My ears go up and I start paying attention to what he's saying and I understand what the Apostle is describing. He is describing an, a profit that comes and that profit increases over time and that profit abounds to the account of the one who is involved in giving to the Lord's work. That's why I say that giving is a profitable investment. Now, does the Bible promise that those who give receive a blessing from giving? Does the Bible promise that? 
Is there a reward for the faithful giver? Let me read to you a few Proverbs. Listen to this. This I thought was very interesting. Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. There's one who scatters and yet increases all the more. There's one who withholds what is justly due and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous and he who waters will himself be watered. Proverbs 19.17, one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, will repay him for his good deed. Proverbs 22.9, he who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. He who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. Proverbs 3.9 and 10, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first fruits of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. That's the Old Testament. You say, well, that was under the Old Covenant. And then in the Old Covenant, the Jews had to give a mandatory gift and God always promised to bless them for their mandatory gift. But what under the New Covenant? What under the New Testament of grace? Is there a promise that God will reward the faithful giver under the New Covenant in the New Testament? There is. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The Lord Jesus, Luke chapter 6, says, Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Acts 20.35, Paul says, In everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that He Himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. There is a blessing that comes to the giver. In Hebrews 6.10, God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you've shown toward His name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. Is there temporal blessings that God gives to those who give? Is there? God rewards the faithful giver. Now listen, don't, as I said before, think for a moment that I've jumped ship and all, uh, jumped ship and all of a sudden I'm a prosperity preacher. This is different. The prosperity preachers get on TV or on the radio or in their books, their pamphlets, or on their websites, and they ask you to give out of a motive of greed. You need to give so that you can get. And this is the year of harvest. And if you just open up your pocketbook and you give to our ministry, you're going to find that this is a year of jubilee and God is going to bless you abundantly. He's going to pour out the blessing. The gates of heaven will open up. I don't know why I had to do that in a southern accent. It seems like more and more false teachers have southern accents nowadays. I'm sorry, Chad. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about giving out of a pretext for greed and a desire to get. You know what our giving is motivated by? We have received from the Lord, so much abundance, so much blessing, so much provision, so much grace. You think it was steep in the Old Testament to give to the Lord a certain percentage? What under the New Covenant? Where we don't have a minimum percentage. We certainly don't have a maximum percentage. But in the New Covenant, we're just told, just give. Give as the Lord has prospered you. And so we give not based upon a percentage, Not out of guilt, not out of tricks, not out of manipulation, not in order to get anything out of it, but we give because the Gospel has changed our hearts and we have received so much from the Lord, both materially and spiritually, that out of the overflow and abundance of our hearts, we give. And we give generously. And we give spontaneously. And we give regularly and consistently and purposefully. There's all of those blessings. 
So even though we don't give to receive a temporal blessing, we can't deny that there are temporal blessings that come to the faithful giver. Let me let me give you some of them. I just sat down this week and I just out of my own experience, out of what I could think of in the New Testament, and I went through the Old Testament and I just looked at some of the blessings temporally. We're not even talking about eternal blessings, just temporal blessings. What is it that comes to the faithful giver? Now, if you're a giver and you're sitting here and you've, you've given of your finances, you this is a discipline that you do regularly, you love faithful, regular, generous giving, then you know that you could add to my list. I came up with eight, and you could add to this list, I'm sure. But let me just give you these eight. Number one, it reminds us that what we have is not ours. You sit down every month and you write that check out of your banking account, or you give of your money to the Lord. It is, I find, a subtle reminder to me, everything that I have is not mine. It belongs to somebody else. You see, when I first became a Christian, I lived under the assumption that when the Lord gave money to me in income, that I would look at whatever came in, whatever money, and I would see it sort of as a pile of seed. And I would say to myself, how much of this does the Lord get? I'll come up with a percentage, and I'll slide it off here to the side. Now, the rest is mine. But I look at finances differently now. For the last number of years, at least since I got married... The way I look at finances now, and getting married has nothing to do with this, but I look at finances, and I'll t- I'll, I'll, since I said that, and let me not, uh, <laughs> let me not impugn marriage at all. The reason I view it differently now is because before I became, uh, before I was married, I was a very greedy, selfish, hoarding individual. That's how I viewed finances. And then I realized that I was going to marry somebody whose spiritual gift was the gift of giving. So I better get get my checkbook in order and get my disciplines down and learn this gift of grace giving before I marry this woman. It's going to be a constant source of conflict. So that's why I say since I got married, it's, it's much different now. Now I have a different view of finances. And uh, there was a transition that took place in my thinking, and, and this was the transition. Now when I look at something that the Lord gives me, it's a different question that we are to ask as Christians. Now the question we ask is, how much of this do I need to live on? See, it's all the Lord's. It's not how much of mine do I take to give to God. It's how much of what is God's do I take for myself. Now, that's a totally different perspective, isn't it? How much do I keep of this? That's the question we ask. And so every, every month or every week or however often or regular it is that you do it, and you sit down to write out your check or to give to the Lord or you, through your discipline to regular financial giving, through that discipline of stewardship, it reminds you What I have is not my own. And it makes us always evaluate how much of what is the Lord's am I keeping to live off of. That's the first blessing. Number two, it acknowledges that all that you have received, you've received from God. When you receive something from the Lord and then you turn around and you give it back to the Lord, it is an acknowledgement that we received it from Him in the first place. That's why David in 1 Chronicles 29, at the building of the temple when they had that big uh, uh, fundraising Sunday, David says, Lord, from You come all honor and riches and glory. And all that we've received, we've received from your hand. And now, from your hand to your hand, we give to you. David understood it. Everything I've received, I've received from the Lord's hand. So when I give back to the Lord, what am I doing? I'm just taking from one of the Lord's hands and putting it in the other of the Lord's hands. None of it belongs to me to begin with. And it acknowledges that everything that I have received, I've received as a gift of grace. I don't deserve any of it. I don't have a claim on any of it. All that I have belongs to the Lord. And giving recognizes that. And it reminds me of that. That is a benefit. That is a profit that comes to me as a giver. Number three, it breaks the hold of selfishness on our lives. It's hard to be selfish when you're a giver. And it doesn't mean you never struggle with it. 
But I'll tell you something. If you want to break the hold of selfishness on your life, make yourself give. And you will find all of a sudden that all of the chains of money and all of the burdens of prosperity and all of the covetousness all of a sudden has a much looser grip on you than it ever did before. Why? Because you make yourself give. And you give to the Lord. And there's something in doing that that just loosens the grip of filthy lucre on your life. Number four, it invests your heart in other things. We talked about this last week. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. You give to something, all of a sudden you have a vested interest in that organization, that missionary, that cause, that whatever it is that you gave to. You're interested in that because that's where you put your treasure. And so it invests your own heart in things that are outside of you and beyond you. Number seven, the letter E. Fellowship with others. It reminds us that we have fellowship with others and with other ministries. When you give to something, you are fellowshipping or sharing in and partaking with that ministry. We do this as a church when we give to our missionaries that come here. There is nothing that cheers my heart more than when a missionary is on furlough and they come up here, as did Gordy Hunt last time he was here. And he got up here. Do you remember what he did? He read to us from the newly published what? Book of Philippians in Monhui. When he did that, I can hardly... When he did that, I welled up. I almost couldn't hold it together. Why? Because I realized as a church, through our gifts, through our finances... We are putting the Word of God in somebody else's language. We are participating and fellowshipping and investing ourselves in that work. And through our financial gift, we are sharing in that. We're sharing in the reward and the investment. And through our money, we are purchasing for ourselves friends forever. The shores of glory. Number six, we get to see the eternal fruit of what it is that we give to. Here on earth. Now, if you save up all your money for when you're gone, you give it all to your kids, you're not going to be able to see where it goes or what happens to it. But if you give while you're here, and you give to things, and then you are invested in that thing, and you're watching what happens to it, then you get to watch the eternal fruit that comes forward out of what you invest. You get to see how it's used. You get to see what is accomplished with it. That's a profit. That's a benefit. And that's a temporal blessing. Number seven, it makes us all live by faith as well. You see, when I give, I'm recognizing that I believe it is easier for me to live on. I'm just throwing out a percentage, not indicating how much I give or what I give. It is easier for me to live on 90% of my income under the will of God obediently than it is to live on 100% and not give. And that's a fact. And whatever the Lord calls you to give, 10%, 20 30 40 50 of your income, whatever it is, When you give, you are living by faith and acknowledging it is easier for me to live on less than it is on more if I'm walking with God and being obedient and receiving His blessing. It is always easier to live on your income minus giving than it is on all of your income. And number nine, eight, I told you I had eight. You see God work to provide for you sometimes in supernatural ways. And if you're a giver and you've given of the Lord financially, you know what this is like. And you give and sometimes you give and it hurts and then all of a sudden something happens. You think, that's a God thing. That happened and that is phenomenal. That God stepped in and He met that need or He made this happen or He gifted me with this or you see the blessing of it and you see how it is easier to live on less than it is on more when you're faithful to the Lord. I've had people in counseling situations say to me, I I stopped tithing. I stopped giving. And you know why? Because we just found that we were getting behind by giving. I think there's something else going on there other than just getting behind by giving. I don't believe you ever get behind by giving. That's, That's the amazing thing. Now, if you're a giver, 
then you're not going to have any argument with anything I've just said. You've recognized all those blessings and you could probably add another six or seven or eight to that list of things that you've seen and blessings that you've received from that. If you're not a giver, then you're going to have a problem with everything I just said because you don't understand it. And if you're not a giver, then there's nothing I can do to describe to you the blessings of giving because you've never received them. You don't understand what it is to give to the Lord and receive out of the abundance of His blessings, even temporally. Now, once again, that's not why we give. We don't give in order to get or receive these blessings. We give because we have been given so much grace. And God has changed our hearts. And the Gospel has made a difference. And all of a sudden, my perspective is different. And my my desire is for uh, uh, God's kingdom and His glory and His interests and the advancement of all of that in the Word of God. And those are the just the temporal blessings that we receive. But is there eternal blessings that we receive? There's profit in heaven too, my friends. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store... Listen, this is a command. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. What is Jesus talking about? He is saying you can invest in earthly treasures or you can invest in heavenly treasures. And if you invest in earthly treasures, then everything you invest in is going to be stolen, is going to rot, is going to rust, and it's eventually going to end up in a landfill. I was just thinking about this this morning, sitting in my couch, looking around my living room, going over everything I was getting ready to say to you today, and I thought to myself, everything around me is going to end up in a landfill. Everything. My truck is going to end up as scrap metal for somebody else's truck. My van's going to end up as scrap metal on somebody else's van. My television's going to end up in a landfill. The couch that I'm sitting in is going to end up in a landfill. Or it's going to be burnt up. It's all going to disappear. Even my house is not going to stand forever. And I'm going to die and everything is going to be handed down. Maybe a generation, maybe a two, until my name is long forgotten. And then my children and my grandchildren, having no gratitude for me whatsoever, are going to kick it all in a landfill. It's all going to be gone. And along with that, my name is going to disappear. So I can either invest in earthly treasures which will rot and rust and corrode and be stolen and ripped off or burn up. Or I can invest in heavenly treasures. Where, in heaven, neither the principal nor the interest can be touched by anything when I give to the Lord. So I have my choice. I can either invest in the here and now or I can invest in the then and there. There are a lot of Christians who live in luxury here on this earth. Luxury, opulence, they are rich, it's comfortable, they enjoy all that their earthly pleasure has to bring. Everything that comes to them, they enjoy all of it. And they live in such wealth and opulence and affluence here on earth. And then guess what happens? They're going to step into heaven and they're going to be paupers for all of eternity. For all of eternity. Oh, they're going to enjoy the presence of Christ. They're going to enjoy the blessings of the forgiveness of sins. But I don't believe that we will be in heaven for five minutes before we say, Oh, did I waste it. Man, did I screw it up. Man, did I miss my opportunity. I don't believe that we're going to stand in heaven and look around at heaven and say, You know what? I wish I would have held on to more while I was on the face of the earth. We're not going to do that. And then there are people who are poor here and they've given out of their poverty to the Lord regularly and faithfully and diligently, even though it is a little bit, And they are going to be greeted on the shores of heaven with a treasure that is beyond their imagination. And there will be Christians whose treasure is bigger in heaven who gave less while they were here on earth because they gave out of the Lord with the right motives and with the right heart and they gave out of their abundance or their want and their need 
whose treasure is going to be greater than the person who made a million dollars a month and he gave a hundred thousand dollars a month to the Lord with the wrong motives. We just have no idea what is waiting for us treasure-wise in heaven. But Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Listen, you cannot take it with you, but you can send it ahead. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. I want you to imagine a scenario. And I borrowed this illustration from Randy Alcorn's book, The Treasure Principle, which I would recommend to you. It's a short read, it's an easy read, but it'll, it'll bless your socks off. Let me give you this illustration. I want you to imagine that you travel to a foreign country. Let's say France. No, let's not say France. Let's say Italy. You travel to Italy, foreign country, and you're traveling to Italy. And there while you're in Italy, you have the opportunity for just a few weeks' time to make a tremendous amount of money. But here's the stipulation. While you're in Italy earning this money, when you leave Italy, you can't take anything with you. You have to leave everything behind. But you can take that money and send it back home to the United States and put it in an account there. Now, while you're in Italy, what are you going to do? Are you going to spend money in Italy on the finest carpets and the finest wall hangings and the, the finest ride and the finest foods and everything and spend all of your money in Italy knowing that all of the couches and the clothes and everything that you have to leave behind when you leave Italy and come back to the United States? Or would you send as much as you can, live on the bare minimum in Italy, send as much as you can back home where you can spend it and use it? Which would you do? Let me give you another scenario. Imagine you're living at the end of the Civil War and you're living in the South and you're a Northerner. And at the end of the Civil War, you are going to uh, take, you're going to move back north to where you, where you normally would live. But while you've lived in the South during the Civil War, you've been buying and purchasing and trading and you've made a tremendous amount of money and you have suitcases full of Confederate cash. But you know that the war is about to end. And you know that when the war ends and the North wins and you move back to the North, at the moment that the war is over and the peace treaty is signed, that your Confederate dollars are going to be worth absolutely nothing. What are you going to do with it? You are going to run as fast as you can and convert all of your Confederate money into U.S. currency, knowing that when the end of the war comes, that's the only currency that's going to be worth any money whatsoever. Only a smart individual will do that. A fool would hoard up Confederate cash knowing that the end of the war is coming. Now, let me give you an insider trading tip. And you're not going to go to jail like Martha Stewart for knowing this. Here's the insider trading tip. Eventually, the war against the truth here on earth is going to come to a conclusion, a screeching halt. And all of our currency is going to be worth nothing. All of our treasure here is going to be worth nothing. When you die or when the Lord comes back. And there is a cataclysmic event that is coming our way when Jesus Christ returns and all of earth's currency will be worth absolutely nothing. And you know what we do as fools? We build our own little kingdom and we think that we can take our 401ks and our mutual funds and our stocks and our bonds and our savings accounts and all of that and we can step into heaven and walk up to the exchange booth and say, Lord, I'd like to exchange all of this worthless garbage for eternal currency, treasure in heaven. We think that that's what's going to happen, and that's not what's going to happen. We're going to leave everything here which is going to become absolutely useless at our death, and we are going to step into eternity, and we're either going to have a treasure there that we've been laying up, laying aside, or we're not going to have any treasure there that we've been laying aside. Some Christians are afraid to die. And you know why they're afraid to die? Because they know that every day that they live brings them one day closer to losing all of their treasure. Some Christians aren't afraid to die. And you know why? Because they know that every day that they live brings them closer to losing absolutely nothing 
and gaining everything of infinite and eternal worth. So now I ask you, where are you laying up your treasure? Here on earth or in heaven? And the Apostle Paul says that there is a, there is a profit which increases to our account. We have the ability to store up treasures in heaven and to lay aside treasures in heaven. And whenever we give to the Lord's work, whenever we give to the Lord or to the poor in the name of the Lord or to help somebody or to advance the gospel or to a missionary or to a church or to a ministry or to any of those things, whenever we offer something to the Lord, it is deposited, it is stored up, it is laid aside as treasure in heaven. And it goes into there and there it increases in our account. So that when we step into heaven, then we realize what our real treasure was. Now, I don't get any bank, I don't get any statement at the end of every month or at the end of every year that tells me what my treasure looks like in heaven. But I want you to know something. I'm looking forward to seeing what it is. And you, and you may ask the question, is it legitimate for us to give and to serve in expectation or in hopes of a reward? Some people would say, no, that's an impure motive. I disagree. I think it's a pure motive. It's the motive that Jesus gave me. Even the desire to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, is serving for a reward. That's a reward to me. I want that reward. I want the Master's approval. I want to hear Him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And I'm looking forward to stepping into heaven and seeing what treasure awaits me and what I have done that is going to last for all of eternity and what I have given that has gone ahead of me and what I've been storing up there and the interest and the increase that it has been growing since I've started doing that. I'm looking forward to that. I think that's a legitimate motivation for service and for giving. Because I can't take any of this with me, right? If I can't take any of this with me, I might as well send it ahead. That's the choice we have. Take it with me. I can't do that. Send it ahead. That I can do. And I do it every time I give to the Lord. I make a deposit and I'm storing up. And you, if you're giving, are storing up treasures which will be revealed on the day of Christ Jesus. I think it's going to be phenomenal. See, that's what excited the Apostle Paul. When he says, I'm not after the gift, but I am after, I am seeking after, my heart is set on that profit which comes to you Philippians as a result of your giving. The Apostle Paul knew that on the day of Christ Jesus, they're going to stand there and they're going to see their treasure unveiled and that excited his heart. He was thankful for their gift and excited about their gift, but not because it supplied a need. He was content. He was thankful for their gift because it was storing up for them treasures. And he knew the profit that would increase to them through their faithful and disciplined and sacrificial giving. He knew that it was more blessed to give than to receive. And so out of the Philippians who gave and Paul who received, who was the most blessed according to the Lord Jesus? Paul or the Philippians? The Philippians. They were the ones that get the blessing. You and I are not going to be able to outgive God. And we are not going to stand in heaven and have regret over anything that we gave to the Lord. John Wesley once uh, took a ride with a plantation owner. John Wesley was the circuit-riding Methodist preacher in the 1800s. He went on a tour with a man who owned a large plantation. And they spent most of the day on horseback riding around the plantation, visiting different fields and different shops and barns and workers and equipment and all of that. And the guy was giving the whole tour. It lasted several hours. And by the end of the day, having spent several hours touring the plantation with the owner, they had only covered even a fraction of the plantation of the land that this guy actually owned. But he went on to sit down at dinner and he described to them all the things that Wesley hadn't seen yet. And then at the end of it, across the dinner table, this plantation owner looked across to John Wesley and said, Well, Mr. Wesley, 
What do you think? And John Wesley looked at him and he said, I think you're going to have a hard time leaving all this. Isn't that the truth? Are you going to have a hard time leaving everything? I think it's legitimate to say that our motivation on this earth should be to live on what we need to live and invest the rest for eternity so that we don't step into eternity having been rich for 80 years but be paupers forever. I would rather live on less and go through that for 80 years and not have any trouble leaving what little I leave behind behind and then step into eternity and be rich for all of eternity. Now, I don't know what my treasure looks like. I don't know what your treasure looks like. Uh, but only you can know whether or not you've been investing in it in heaven or not. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you that you've given us strength. We thank you that you have provided for us each and every blessing that we do enjoy. God, we pray that you give to us an eternal perspective, not the temporal perspective, and not to give out of what we can get or receive in return, but to give because you have given to us. Your gift to us is indescribable. And we pray, O oh God, that you would help us to give in light of eternity and to evaluate all that we do here in light of the day of Christ Jesus. We will stand before you and we will receive the reward that you have promised to those who are faithful. We want to live for that. We want to be motivated by that. And we want to give you glory on that day and each day until then. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.